I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about political t-shirts, Ginsburg bench slapping the Second Circuit, and we'll interview Utah Supreme Court Justice Tom Lee. So this is our bonus episode of the week because the Supreme Court... So many opinions. Yeah, added an extra opinion day. Except it wasn't that many. Thursday of this week, yes. So they they issued two opinions on Thursday of this week. So now we have 19 cases to go, only a few more days left. Uh, But one of of the opinions was uh, one we've been anticipating, Minnesota Voters Alliance versus Mansky. So this is a First Amendment case. Uh, the case of Andrew Selleck, who was involved with the local Tea Party in Minnesota, he wore a Please ID Me button and a Don't Tread on Me t-shirt with the Gadsden flag to the polls on Election Day in 2010. And he was turned away from the polls. And then he learned that there is a Minnesota law that bans voters from wearing hats, t-shirts, buttons and other insignia uh, 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 apparel with political anything that's construed as political when they go to the polls on Election Day. So he challenged this in court, and it ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court, and the court ruled 7-2 in an opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts that the Minnesota law violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. So that's good news for voters across America, because there are uh, something like nine other states that have pretty similar laws. So to quickly go through what the court held, they said that the polls are a non-public forum. So this means that the government can place some content-based restrictions on speech, uh, but they have to have a reasonable basis. The state has to be able to articulate some reasonable basis for why uh, why it is uh, re- restricting the speech. And in, a, in an earlier case in the 90s, the court had upheld a state's ban on active campaigning outside, immediately outside of Uh, polling locations. But this was a a step further because what Minnesota was trying to do was ban passive activity, uh, you know, individuals who are the voters coming into the polls wearing T-shirts with political messages versus campaign workers um, who are actively campaigning. So what the court said was that the state's unmoored use of the term political and haphazard interpretation failed its pretty low bar of articulating a reasonable basis for what speech is prohibited. The majority wrote that a a rule whose fair enforcement requires an election judge to maintain a mental index of platforms and positions of every candidate and party on the ballot is not reasonable. So at the oral argument, Justice Alito really got into it with the lawyer for the state, going back and forth over what what types of messages are uh, are on the OK side of the line, according to Minnesota, and on the prohibited side of the line. And, you know, so he asked about something like a T-shirt with a rainbow flag. And the lawyer said, well, that would be OK. Well, unless there was a gay rights issue on the ballot. What about the NRA? No, you can't have that. What about the, the text of the First Amendment? OK, that's probably fine. What about the text of the Second Amendment? Mm, I don't think that's OK. So you can see how... Uh, This just leaves a it's very subjective and leaves a lot of discretion open to the election judges. So the Supreme Court uh, held that it was not permissible. Two justices dissented. uh, Justice Sotomayor wrote the dissent joined by Stephen Breyer. And she just said that she would have certified this issue to the Minnesota Supreme Court to interpret the state statute. Uh, But the majority declined to do that. And it addressed this uh, this dissent in in a, in a footnote towards the end of the opinion, just saying, we're not exercising this discretion. Minnesota's request for certification came really late in the game. This this litigation has been going on for more than seven years. And now the state is saying, oh, we want this to go to the Minnesota Supreme Court. And so the Supreme the U.S. Supreme Court was not willing to go there. So it was a, a good ruling for for free speech.
Yeah. And one of the things I thought was was interesting was so some other states like Texas draw a, a clearer line than Minnesota did and by banning express advocacy. Um, but at oral argument, Dave Bremer, the Pacific Foundation uh, legal foundation lawyer, uh, held held the line and did not concede that um, that laws like that banning express advocacy by voters um, would be um, okay under under the First Amendment. And so the court said that they specifically said that they were not um, passing on the constitutionality of of these laws because they weren't before them. So I think that'll be an interesting. Um, a developing area that could come out. We'll see if some other cases uh, pop up challenging challenging those laws. Definitely. And in in his majority opinion, Chief Justice Roberts points to, as you say, Texas and, and I think California was the other example with a ban on express advocacy. And he says they're not necessarily constitutional, but these are definitely clearer standards for election judges to follow than Minnesota's Minnesota's loosey goosey standard. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it was it was a good a good decision. Yes. Yeah, so with it. Uh, Big congrats to the Pacific Legal Foundation team uh, for this this case and this win. Yeah. So what is the other case? It's got something to do with China. <laughs> yes. So the next case is animal science products. And this opinion was by Ginsburg for a unanimous court that held that a federal court is not bound by a foreign government's statements about foreign law. So in this case, a U.S.-based company filed a class action lawsuit alleging that Chinese companies had degree, agreed to fix the price and quantity of vitamin C exported to the U.S. in violation of the Sherman Act. The Chinese companies moved to dismiss, claiming that Chinese law required them to do so and shielded them from liability under U.S. antitrust law. Which uh, is just such a bold yeah. <laughs> statement that the Chinese government made us do it. We're violating your laws. And yeah, and while the Chinese government filed an amicus brief supporting this argument, it didn't cite any statute or regulation. And there was evidence that the Chinese companies had agreed to fix prices and quantities on their own. So the Second Circuit held that federal courts are bound to defer to a foreign government's construction of its own law, and that in this case, the Chinese government's construction was reasonable. The Supreme Court reversed that unanimously, holding that Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 44.1 makes determining foreign law a ruling on a question of law, and that appellate courts do so de novo. So while courts should, as a matter of international comedy, consider a foreign state's views about the meaning of its laws, the appropriate weight to give those views depends on the circumstances of each case, and courts may also consider other relevant materials. And because the Second Circuit's rigid rule focused only on the Chinese government's statements and ignored evidence by um, submitted by U.S. companies, the court vacated that decision. Sounds like another good one. So we recently spoke with Utah Supreme Court Justice Thomas Lee. Tom Lee is the Associate Chief Justice of the Utah Supreme Court. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Justice Lee. Thanks for having me. So you've been at the forefront of corpus linguistics, as you have called it, data-driven originalism. So tell our listeners, what is corpus linguistics? So corpus is a body, in this case a body of language, and linguistics is, of course, the scientific study of language. And so corpus linguistics is a field of linguistics that aims to study the usage of language uh, by systematically analyzing large bodies or databases of language. So a, a linguist might be interested in uh, the different ways that words might get used, for example, to develop a dictionary. So when a lexicographer makes a dictionary today, the 
principal tool for lexicography is to mine a bunch of data in large body or database of language to try to guess, get a sense of the broad range of uses of a given term or a phrase in our language. And uh, the idea that I've been working on is that this is a tool or a field of language study that may be useful for interpretation in the law. I've got a project underway that involves using uh, a database or a corpus called the Corpus of Founding Era American English that's being developed at Brigham Young University where mm -hmm. I used to teach full-time and continue to teach as an adjunct. That's um, a database of, of language uh, from the founding era of the Constitution from the mid to the late 18th century. And the idea there is to, to be able to study systematically and scientifically in a replicable way, uh, the way that words were used at the time of the founding. That's great. So Georgetown law professor Larry Solem has predicted that corpus linguistics will revolutionize statutory and constitutional interpretation. So do you think this is the future? I think it's part of the future. I, I think that... Um, I mean, maybe just taking a step back and speaking a little more broadly, I think it's rather embarrassing that uh, so much of what lawyers do, certainly what appellate judges uh, like myself, what we do, involves uh, analyzing language, resolving ambiguities in language, and yet we don't have uh, really a field of law and linguistics. We don't teach budding lawyers and future judges about language, at least from the standpoint of a field like linguistics that uh, has been developed for the purpose of scientifically studying how language gets used and how ambiguity is both created and resolved, you know, that we don't uh, make that a serious focus of study in law school or mm -hmm. something that we teach judges about. I think that I'm confident that that's part of the future. I also believe that uh, this corpus linguistics tool will be a piece of the methodology of statutory and constitutional interpretation. For that matter, contract interpretation, patent claim construction, any place we're trying to understand the ordinary meaning or the ordinary usage you know, we used to call it plain language. Sometimes we, we use that term. I tend to agree with, with Judge Easterbrook that language isn't very often plain, at least in cases that come to our appellate courts. The, the whole problem is, it is that it isn't plain, that there's an ambiguity that needs to be resolved. And, and I do think that um, going forward, we, we will need to use and will use this tool of corpus linguistics to tackle those sorts of problems. You clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. What's your favorite memory of your time with him? Just sort of pure favorite memory, I think, would be um, trying to persuade him to play basketball on the <laughs> highest court in the land, on the, on the basketball court in the Supreme Court building. Yeah, I, were, I arrived there, I think it was his fourth year on the court, and one of the years prior, um, his clerks had persuaded him to go up and, and play competitive basketball, five-on-five -five basketball on that court. And he had torn his Achilles or some awful thing. And, and his wife, uh, Ginny, had uh, forbade him that from then on from, from playing basketball. <laughs> we wanted to try to overcome that um, problem. My co-clerks and I like to go up and, and play basketball, and we really wanted to talk Justice Thomas into 
to playing with us. We knew he was a great athlete. We knew he was a lot of fun to be around. Um, we tried and tried and pushed and pushed and eventually um, realized that the, the persuasive tactic we were taking wasn't going to succeed. So we, so we sort of shifted gears a little bit and we decided, all right, Justice Thomas, we, we, we brought out our, our textualist tool here and we said, Justice Thomas, what, you, what you've been forbidden from doing is playing basketball, right? Well, surely that means competitive five-on-five -five basketball. That's the original meaning of the prohibition, right? And, and so um, he eventually sort of concedes that maybe we have a point there. So we say, you know, just come up there with us and, and let's play some horse, you know, a little basketball shooting game. Let's go up there and what, what harm can come from that? You know, let's go, let's go shoot the basketball up there and play a game of horse. He didn't like that idea very much for a while. He eventually gave in and... and, and but, but the little speech he gave us on our way up to the court was, he said, but look, Supreme Court justices don't play horse. They play habeas corpus. <laughs> so we went up and played a game of habeas corpus with Justice Thomas and my co-clerks. Um, it turns out, um, A, habeas corpus takes a lot of time. It, yeah. It's a long game to play habeas yeah. corpus. And, um, and, and second, um, there, there is a little bit of potential for injury, it turns out. This story has a little bit of a sad ending in that my, my co-clerk, John Yu, um, made a, a, a shot during our game of habeas corpus. I don't think he made any other shots, but he made one from <laughs> three-quarter court, way, you know, long ways away from the basket. And Justice Thomas followed John and so had to shoot the shot from three-quarter court and ended up injuring his shoulder and Mrs. No. Thomas was not happy with us. So oh, no. Maybe that shouldn't be a favorite story because it didn't end particularly well, uh, but that, that, was a, that was a great memory of that year. And I've heard Justice Thomas talk before about playing habeas corpus, so is that right? I think wow. it's definitely something that is a, a good memory for him. Yeah. So do you have a favorite Thomas opinion, whether it's a majority opinion or a concurrence or even a dissent? So probably the, the opinion that I think of, um, because it's a case that, along with my co-clerks, I had an opportunity to, to work with Justice Thomas on, was the uh, Lopez opinion, the concurring opinion from Justice Thomas in the Lopez case, uh, which of course involved the constitutionality of the Gun-Free School Zones Act and the question whether Congress had the power to, under the Commerce Clause, to enact the Gun-Free School, School Zones Act. It's, it, it was a it was a really a big turning point for me um, in part because it opened my mind to the power of originalism mm -hmm. and um, Justice Thomas's you know deep thinking about the theory and the practice of originalism as well as his um, uh, I don't know just his his commitment to careful thinking his commitment to principle um, and the work that um, my co-clerks and I were able to do on, on that opinion. The, the process of working on an opinion as a Justice Thomas um, law clerk is, I mean, that's another great memory and another great story. And, and one of the reasons why I, I guess I think of Lopez when you ask me this question um, is just um, along with uh, Cy Prakash and Caleb Nelson and, and John Yu, um, who were my co-clerks, as well as Eric Grant, who was clerking for retired Chief Justice Berger and worked with us uh, that year. We traded a lot of drafts of that opinion and, of course, got a lot of um, marching orders and guidance from Justice Thomas and a lot of edits from him on, you know, how to handle, you know, uh, existing precedent, what, how to handle all the originalist material that we were coming up with. And 
So I, that, that's, that's, the, that's the opinion that comes to my mind. So is there a Thomas Alito rivalry in your family since your brother clerked for then Judge Alito when he was on the Third Circuit? I wouldn't say there's a rivalry. I, I think we've more just sort of both invited each other a, a bit into the Alito and, and Thomas families. Um, when, when my brother clerked for Justice, then Judge Alito on the Third Circuit, I was able to visit him um, there and have lunch with, with Judge Alito. Um, Mike went on to clerk for Justice Alito as well at the Supreme Court, and I was able to visit him that year and get to interact with Justice Alito a little bit. Justice Thomas has developed, um, uh, he, he refers to his law clerks as his clerk family. I think a lot of judges think of it in that way. I certainly do with my law clerks. Um, and Justice Thomas, the last few years, has been doing uh, a retreat. And happily for me, he's been doing it in Utah. He's been doing it <laughs> at Deer Valley. So we get to invite him to come to Utah and uh, see the beautiful uh, state that I live in and, and that my brother uh, lives in. And Mike has been, um, we did an adoption ceremony for Mike a couple of years ago. So Mike, along with, I think there may be four or five Adopted clerks, adopted Clarence <laughs> Thomas clerks, and Mike Lee is an adopted Clarence Thomas clerk. So, That's I think great. there's no rivalry at all, but just a, a lot of love and admiration and respect for the for the two justices that we both got to clerk for. That's wonderful. So you also clerked for Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit. Tell us about working for him. Judge Wilkinson is just so amazing. I learned so much from Judge Wilkinson. Um, I remember. Um, so when I, I interviewed with Judge Wilkinson when I was a second-year law student, and um, if you meet Judge Wilkinson, uh, your first impression of him will be, uh, and this was certainly my first impression, this is the consummate Southern gentleman. This is the kindliest, gentlest, um, I don't know, warmest person you'll ever come across. Um, the, one of the awesome things about Judge Wilkinson, though, is that he is all of those things, but he is also just ruthlessly committed to getting his opinions right, to careful, precise legal analysis, to uh, incisive, lean, uh, forceful writing. Um, and, and I learned so much from him. There was, there was a little bit of a whiplash effect in clerking for Judge Wilkinson. I, I think I've talked to other Wilkinson clerks about this. I think most all of us have had this experience. You go in knowing what a warm, you know, gentle, kind person he is. Um, and, but then you also see the, the ruthless commitment to all <laughs> of those things that I just mentioned. The first time he called me into his office after I had turned in a draft opinion to him, I was certain that I was the absolute worst law clerk he had ever had in, in his history on the Fourth Circuit, and maybe I was, I don't know, but um, what, what, I, what I really learned um, pretty soon after that was just how he didn't take himself seriously, but how seriously he took his job and his commitment to the principles that he espouses. And the way that he approaches the opinion drafting process, I, I learned so much from both of those judges that I had a chance to clerk for that I try to incorporate into my work, not nearly as well as they do, but in, into my work on the Utah Supreme Court. Um, I've been able to go back to Charlottesville a number of times. I spoke at the University of Virginia a couple of years ago. And another great thing about Judge Wilkinson, uh, 
he, uh, he goes running with his law clerks, at least when I clerked for him, every day you'd go out for a run with Judge Wilkinson, <laughs> and then you'd go and have lunch with him afterwards, and I was able to kind of reprise that tradition with him a couple of years ago when I visited him uh, at UVA, and he's just also one of, my, one of my mentors and favorite people in all the world. That's wonderful. So you spent two years as a law clerk, and now you have clerks of your own. What's the best piece of advice you have for aspiring law clerks? You know, I, I think um, there are a bunch of things that aspiring law clerks already know that they need to do that probably don't need to be restated, but I'm going to restate them anyway just because you have to have them in order to, it's probably obvious, but in order to be, uh, you know, in the conversation and eligible for a clerkship. So, uh, you know, grades obviously matter a lot and, and academic distinction and law review to a lot of judges makes makes a difference. Um, probably the somewhat you know less obvious um, advice or, or thought would be how important it is to develop relationships with law professors and potential recommenders while you're in law school or even while you're at a summer associate position um, after your first year or you know, sometimes after your second year, it's 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 too late. Um, and so, part part of this advice, I think, is really early on in your law school experience, ha have this this need on your radar. You know, be aware of the fact that um, you're the, the judges you're going to apply to, they're going to have a stack of applications. Uh, you know, many many inches thick with lots of qualified candidates, lots of candidates who, who already have the, the academic distinction and law review experience and whatever other markers are going to appear on, on, on the resume. What you really need to stand out is someone who's willing to write a letter or, or even more so today, the, the way that I think this process works today, who are willing to pick up the telephone or have a personal conversation the next time they interact with the judge. Um, uh, certainly. For, for me, when I get that kind of a letter from someone I know and who knows the applicant, it just makes a huge difference and that resume suddenly just leaps off the pile. So do you have any traditions with your law clerks, like how Justice Thomas takes his to Gettysburg at the end of the term? So no, nothing nearly that grand. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wish that I did. I, I, wish that, I wish there was something cool enough to take my law clerks to like Gettysburg that we could have that kind of a tradition. I think the closest that we come um, in the Lee Chambers is um, there's a taco place that we go to. That's just so far away from Gettysburg. It's a, it's a, it's a poor uh, comparison to, to this example. But um, way back when, as a as a 19-year-old, uh, I was a Mormon missionary in Mexico, and I uh, grew to love Mexican food, and in particular authentic Mexican tacos. And there's, uh, maybe surprisingly to a lot of people, but you can get some really good Mexican food in Salt Lake City. And there's a place where you can get some al pastor tacos in uh, on the west side of Salt Lake City in a place called Rose Park. That uh, That's kind of been a tradition. We, we go there and have tacos and sometimes talk about our cases, but more often just enjoy the Mexican food. You don't take your clerks running like Judge Wilkinson? <laughs> I have tried, and, and I have continued that running tradition. Um, there have been a few of them who have taken me up on it. Actually, my, a couple of my current clerks have said that they're interested in it, so maybe we will maybe we'll try that. <laughs> I like that idea. So your father was the great Solicitor General Rex Lee. Tell us what 
conversations at the dinner table were like growing up? So I've heard my brother tell of conversations that he had with my dad um, in, in sort of great in-depth detail about separation of powers and federalism and textualism and originalism and all, you know, all these grand um, conservative principles and constitutional principles. I don't really remember that. You know, I, I just wasn't, you know, maybe as my, my brother's uh, even more of a law geek than I am. I think he was more plugged into the law from a, at least from a young age um, than I was. I, I was I was more out playing basketball or hanging out with my friends or something. But what I what I do remember by way of conversations with my dad, I think what my dad sort of modeled for me, um, you know, in some ways this overlaps with what I was saying about Judge Wilkinson. I suppose my dad modeled. Um, in a way, he modeled due process for me, or procedural fairness is a term that gets used um, in, in the evaluation of judges sometimes. And I think all of my siblings, my siblings and I have talked about this. I have five sisters as well as my brother, Mike, who's in the Senate. And what we've all, one of the memories we all share about our dad is thinking back on any trivial little thing that we wanted from our dad he wanted to hear an argument from us. <laughs> so if it was, uh, you know, my sister Wendy and I had a Honda Accord that we kind of had to share when we were both of, of you know, driving age in, in our teenage years at Langley High School in, in McLean, Virginia. And um, if, if it was a debate about, you know, who gets the car this weekend, my dad would sort of effectively convene an oral argument and he would hear <laughs> from both of us and then he would rule on our case. And he always told us, you know, I want to hear you out. I want to hear your case. And even if he was going to rule against us, it, uh, I think it did instill in us sort of the idea that, um, uh, you know, a, a marketplace of ideas or, or there would be a fair contest, there would be due process. We would, we would get procedural fairness and we would, we would be heard out. So... That's, that's certainly one memory of my interactions with my dad. That's great. So we have one final question that we ask every guest here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there's a number of things that I feel like I'd like to say and answer that question that maybe I shouldn't because I'm a sitting judge. <laughs> <laughs> there are some things that I might say that I'm not sure that I want out there, you know, publicly. Um, so let me think of a, I, I guess one, one thought that I, I think back on sort of some turning point moments in the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court. You know, I think back on the New Deal era. I think back on the Roe decision. I, think I would like to have a conversation with, um, you, you know, let, let's say, you know, speaking of the New Deal era cases, you know, maybe the judges in, in Wickard versus Filburn. I, I, you know, I recall that Wickard was a unanimous opinion. So, you know, are there, are there any of those judges that, you know, justices that, that sort of foresaw the broad expansion um, of the federal government and of the administrative state? Uh, do they have any regrets? You know, sort of what are their thoughts about that? And I guess the four horsemen were gone by then, by the time of Wickard. But it might be interesting to have a conversation. The only Supreme Court justice uh, from the state of Utah, George Sutherland, was one of the one of the four horsemen. You know, one of the at least initial opponents to New Deal expansionism. It would be an interesting to have a conversation with him um, as well. Speaking of Roe, it, you know, it might be interesting to have a conversation with. Um, 
you know, with, with some of the Republican appointees who voted in favor of Justice Blackmun's majority opinion, you know, with, with Chief Justice Berger, uh, with Justice Powell, uh, you know, those justices. And, you know, if, if they sort of sitting from where we are today and seeing where the abortion debate has gone, you know, seeing the effects of um, substantive due process expansionism, Probably just leave it at that generality instead of talking about any cases in particular. But I'd, I'd be really curious to know, um, you know, what their reactions might be to where all that has ended up. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Justice Lee. Thanks we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia end of term edition, where I'm going to try to stump Elizabeth. Are you ready? Bring it on. Okay. First question. Which Chief Justice once quipped that only Supreme Court justices and school children are expected to and do take the entire summer off? <laughs> Was it William Rehnquist? Uh, a more recent one. Hmm, who would that be then? John Roberts. <laughs> yes, it was Chief Justice Roberts. Um, and I'd heard this before, but I, I did a little digging. And he wrote this in a 1983 memo to his boss, the White House counsel at the time, <laughs> after he was asked to address a proposal by Chief Justice Warren Burger to create a new inter-circuit tribunal. So basically it was like a nationwide circuit court. Um, Berger thought that the Supreme Court's workload was too heavy and this new court would help relieve it. Um, they heard about 150 <laughs> cases at that time. Yeah. So Robert wrote in this. Roberts wrote in this memo that this was a terrible idea and that this was a problem of the court's own making and that could, it could fix it itself. And there's some great, really great lines from this. He says, so long as the court views itself as ultimately responsible for governing all aspects of our society, it will understandably be overworked. <laughs> a new court will not solve this problem. And he, he specifically wrote that uh, he thought it was a good thing that the court didn't hear more cases. He wrote, the generally accepted notion that the court can hear can only hear roughly 150 cases each term gives the same sense of reassurance as the adjournment of the court in July when we know that the Constitution is safe for the summer. <laughs> oh, so that's where that famous quote comes from. Yeah, okay, this I've memo. Heard, I've heard the quote. I didn't know where it came yeah, from. Yeah, and I also think this gives some insight into why Roberts has yeah. reduced the number of cases the court hears each term, which is now about 70, which is even lower than under Chief Justice Rehnquist when yeah. it was about 80. Yeah. Okay. Second question. Right after the end of the 2011-2012 term, Chief Justice Roberts went to Malta to teach a class, and there were a lot of rumors that he was just trying to escape the controversy that followed his Obamacare decision, and the chief had apparently joked that Malta was an impregnable island fortress. So... Now to the question. <laughs> Upon his arrival in Malta, who tweeted, John Roberts arrived in Malta yesterday. Maybe we will get lucky and he will stay there. Oh, who tweeted that? 2012. In 2012. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, is it someone famous? Uh, yes. Someone famous for us? He was a public figure at the time and is now... Remains a public figure. And he tweets a lot. And he tweets a lot. Is it, is it Senator Hatch? No. No, it's Donald Trump. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Upset. Apparently upset about Obamacare. I don't think. Um, Was yeah. he really that upset? I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Okay. Third question. The Supreme Court is notoriously tight-lipped. 
So when was the last time a decision was leaked in advance of its announcement on the last day of the term? Well, there were rumors that the Obamacare decision had been leaked. But I think those came immediately after the decision, the rumors surrounding Obamacare. So the last time an opinion was was actually leaked. Oh, I don't know. Was it like the, I don't know. Yeah, I don't have any New York Times versus Sullivan. I don't know. So it was a 1986 case, Bowser versus Sinar, which struck down the Graham-Rudman Balanced Budget Act. Tim O'Brien. Oh, of of, course, that one. Yeah, duh. (laughs) Tim O'Brien of ABC News reported weeks in advance not only the outcome of the case, but the votes in the case. And, like, has it been confirmed since then that it was actually leaked and not that he just guessed really well. Yeah, because it was like very specific. Um, I wonder. I wonder where the leak came from. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. Anyway, they, there haven't been many leaks. No, they run. Then. They run a tight ship over there. Okay. Fourth question and final one. For years, court watchers tried to figure out the exact last day of the term by locating the date. Of which justices' vacation reservations? Uh, well, lots of them go on vacation. Is it? Is this a, a current member of the court? No, it is not a current member. Mm. Man, these are hard. No. Um, so probably someone from, like, the Warren era, maybe? Mm. No? Earlier than that? I'll just, no. Yeah, just tell me. I'll just tell you. It's Justice William Brennan. He spent summers in a cottage at Old North Wharf at Nantucket. (laughs) And to take a car to Nantucket in the summer, he had to make a ferry reservation early in the year. Yeah. So if the media could find out the date of Brennan's ferry reservation, they could predict the court's final decision day. And, yeah, Brennan took his his summer vacations here very seriously. (laughs) Well, those were yeah, uh, those were tough. Very interesting, but uh, but good questions. Well, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.